All right, excellent. Welcome to another episode of Worthy for 30. I am your host, uh, Eric Tash. With me today, I'm very excited to introduce uh, Bradley Tusk, the CEO of Tusk Strategies and, and Tusk Ventures. Bradley, welcome to the show. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So Bradley, just to give you some background on Worthy for 30, so this podcast that I started, really the premise behind it is to bring on and speak with business leaders who are doing good and giving back while they're in their pursuit of success, knowing that the concept of doing good and giving back are not mutually exclusive. So again, I'm very excited uh, to have you on the show to really talk about, again, your career in business, as well as some of the philanthropic endeavors that you've embarked on as you've built and continue to build Tusk Adventures and Strategy. But before we dig in, we'll love for you to give the listeners just a background in your career. What led you into founding the Tusk Ventures and Strategies? And then we'll go from there. Sure, great. So I started my career working in government and politics. The highlights are I was Mike Bloomberg's campaign manager when he ran for mayor of New York City. I worked for him at City Hall. I spent four years as the deputy governor of the state of Illinois, ran the state's budget operations, legislation, policy, and communications. I spent a couple of years in Washington on the Hill as Chuck Schumer's communications director. Then started my first company in 2010, that's Plus Strategies, a consulting firm, that runs big campaigns. So imagine you're Walmart, and you're trying to open up stores in four major downtowns, and you've got union issues and community issues and zoning issues. You know, we figure all that stuff. About a year after I opened it, I get a call from a friend saying, hey, there's a guy with a small transportation startup. He's having some regulatory problems. Would you mind talking to him? Uh, I become Uber's first political advisor that day. I get really lucky when Travis calls back and says, listen, can't afford your fee, which you take equity. I didn't know what equity meant, but thank God I said yes. Uh, <laughs> that was back during the Series A and spent the better part of the next few years running campaigns all over the U.S. to legalize Uber and ride sharing, which luckily worked. But the other thing that is a, some of the insights and the ways that we did it really are what led to the mobile voting project that we're doing now in terms of the ability to mobilize regular people politically if you can do it through technology. That's, that's and, amazing. And then, and then from, from there, I think, well, I just stop talking. Did the process again with Clear to get them into airports for equity. That worked out. Met my partner at the fund, Jordan Knopf. He was at the time running Blackstone's internal venture fund. And the discussion we started to have is, if you truly understand regulatory risk and you can do something about it, how much of a better investor does that make you? 10%, 20%, 30%? And we didn't know the answer. We just knew that it was something. And based on that, we went out and it took us two years. It was incredibly hard. We raised our first fund in late 2016, $35 million. But it's gone, gone pretty well. We're, we're fundraised right now, so we're in a quiet period. So I, I can't say the performance specifically, but some of the companies we invested in, Coinbase, Circle, Lemonade, Roman, Bird, you know, a whole bunch of others. So it's, 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 it's done pretty well. And where we differ from other early stage investors is we look at all the same stuff that they do. The, the TAM, the founder, the underlying tech, the underlying idea. Mm -hmm. But then really, we're asking ourselves two more questions. One, is there a gating regulatory issue or opportunity that if it were solved, can really drive growth and valuation? And if so, too, can we solve it? And the answer is yes to both. That's when it really makes sense for us to invest. Um, raised our second fund in 2019, doubled to 70 million, led rounds, of either the seed or the A for Company Wheel, a Sunday, uh, Boulder Care, IndieGov, all companies that have gone on to successfully fundraise beyond that and started investing out of our third fund this past April, uh, and we will close out the fundraising in the next 
few weeks for it. Separately from that, I do a few other things that may be worth mentioning. I raised a SPAC in late 2020, initially in the gambling sector, and we are working on a deal right now. Founded a company called Exalt. It's a social media platform for religion. You can get it on the App Store. We'll see if it takes off. My, my fear is that we're a couple of years ahead of our time. Not quite there yet, but it's been an interesting project. I teach at Columbia Business School. I teach a class called The Economics and Politics of Disruption. I'm opening a bookstore, podcast studio, cafe, and event space on the Lower East Side of Manhattan in May. I host a podcast called Firewall about tech and politics. I write a column about it for Fast Company. Wrote a book about it a couple of years ago. Working on a couple other books right now. And then on the philanthropic side, Touch Philanthropies really focuses on, on two things. One, mobile voting. So... My experience in politics taught me more than anything else that every policy output is the result of a political life. If an elected official thinks that you can impact the results of their next election, they will do what you want. And if they don't think that, they will ignore you. And on one hand, that's a pretty depressing thought. But on the other hand, it leads us to say, if you want to change the outputs, you need different inputs, right? And mm-hmm. because of gerrymandering, 98, 99% of the elections in this country are really decided in the primary. And average primary turnout in the U.S. is between 10 and 20%. So basically, a tiny subset of people are picking who's in office and then dictating their actions in office. And they tend to be the most ideological on the left or the right. And as a result, they don't get anything done because those voters don't want to get anything done. They just want to remain pure and ideological and take a firm stand against anything they don't agree with. And so we're getting the government basically that we deserve right now. But imagine if you could vote on your phone. More than 75 and 92% of Americans have a smartphone. We showed that with, with Uber, people will engage politically. They just won't show up at a, at a polling site and wait in line on a random Tuesday and miss taking their kid to school or miss work or whatever it is. And so we started in 2018 with the state of West Virginia. We did a program where deployed military from two counties were able to vote in the 2018 primaries. Um, that went pretty well, repeated the process for the general election, but made it for deployed military from 24 counties, kept doing other places. We've now done 21 elections in seven different states where either deployed military or people with disabilities on their phones in state elections, city elections, federal elections. And then in September, we announced that we are building our own mobile voting technology that we think can be completely secure and encrypted and safe that we will give away open source to anyone who wants it. So that's mobile voting. The other is hunger. To me, the most tangible way you can help somebody is to give them food, right? That seems like the Mm -hmm. most simple thing to possibly do. I've been working in soup kitchens for the last 30 years. I was at soup kitchen this morning. And once, you know, I started having enough money to really make a difference, the, the thing that we looked at is, the hunger community tends to be populated by a lot of really nice people uh, who care and, and work hard and everything else, but they tend to not be polit- tend to particularly politically sophisticated, right? So mm-hmm. oftentimes they want to pass bills in their state that would expand school breakfast, school lunch, uh, snap for seniors, whatever it is, and they just didn't have the political know-how to get it done, even though these are not particularly hard issues. So our view is, what if we came in? gave them grants, and then ran the campaigns ourselves. So, And the kind of thing people would normally pay to strategies $70,000, $80,000 a month or more to do for them, we do for free, and we pay out of our pockets the cost of the campaign itself. So lobbyists, pollsters, PR, whatever mm-hmm. else is needed. So in the last five years, we've passed bills in 15 different states that have given 12 million more people 
access to food. Uh, we've got seven more states going uh, right now. And if I do your home state of New Jersey or your state of New Jersey, legislation passed out of the Senate two nights ago, and Governor Murphy has said he would sign it. So I think we're in pretty good shape there. And then we've been trying to, on the federal level, when the Build Back Better bill was, was alive, we were working to get about $10 billion in new federal money for universal school meals. That died when the bill died. We now face an even greater crisis, which is in the the continuance budget that Congress has to pass to just keep the government going currently does not include the waivers that were created during COVID for school breakfast and school lunch, which means that 30% of kids who currently have access will lose it um, if Congress doesn't act. So that's, as of today, that is the thing that I am worried about the most and worked on the most. Wow. You know, and just unpackaging mobile voting for a second before we get into uh, food insecurity. So I think the stat is what 46 states in the United States have or have passed or will pass legislation that will make it more difficult for the average voter to vote in 22. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, I don't know if it's 46, but look, you've got it, it's the same on both sides of the aisle. So Texas and Georgia get the most criticism and attention because they, they pass laws that were really aimed at African-American Latino voters. And, and that obviously got the left very, very upset, and they use all their resources in the media mm -hmm. um, to criticize that. But, you know, the biggest threat to democracy, in my view, or one of them, is, is gerrymandering, right? And mm -hmm. every 10 years, the census is conducted. Two years later, every state legislature or whatever the relevant bodies in that state puts together the new map. And what we saw this year is everyone was just as bad as ever. The Republican states drew every district they could to only benefit Republican candidates. The Democratic mm -hmm. states like New York, where I live, the exact same thing. So as a result, yeah, there's there's no real desire from anyone who's currently in power, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, lobbyists, unions, trade groups, to permit a new idea that could risk their power. That's uh, that's that's uh, astounding. So so it sounds like the whole hysteria over allowing making it easier for the average American to vote and the fight over allowing the average American to vote preceded. 2020. Is that is that accurate? Like there is, again, just a lot of... Sure. I mean, look, there have been tricks and efforts to restrict voting throughout American history. The, the biggest one being that only white men were allowed to vote for the first 140 years of our country. Mm -hmm. right? um, so it, this is not a new phenomenon. I think the only difference, the differences are, number one, polarization and frustration with government is greater than ever. That's why you saw the rise of Donald Trump, of AOC, Bernie Sanders, all of these mm -hmm. crazy ideologues on both sides of the aisle. And because of both the internet, especially social media and, and TV news, we see and hear everything in real time all the time. And so everything feels a lot worse than it actually is, which leads people to become even more frustrated. So democracy, I think, is at a pretty perilous at this moment. And the only way we're going to restore people's faith in it that we can actually get things done. We need legislation on climate change, healthcare, education, immigration, guns, all these things. Mm -hmm. The good news is the majority of people actually agree on most of these issues, but those people don't vote in primaries. So my hope mm -hmm. is that if we can make it radically easier for them to vote in primaries, everything moves towards the center, politicians get the message that they're supposed to get stuff done, and that actually produces some results. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, again, it, it's amazing. And hopefully, you know, all the efforts um, that you're making in terms of from a, a mobile voting standpoint, and again, mitigating any concern that, again, the, the mobile app or the, the functionality to allow the average American with a smartphone to vote is impervious to, to hacks. I think that's probably 
one of the concerns that you know the people who are against mobile voting are saying is, hey, it's so easy for hackers to get gain access to change someone's vote if they have access to vote via mobile. So again, it's it's really interesting to see how this evolves and getting yeah, getting. And, and they they say that, but like what's before, we conducted twenty one elections, all twenty one mm-hmm. were independently audited by the National Cybersecurity Center, and all came back clean. So yeah, in theory they could, and that's why we're building our own. Mobile technology, why I took $10 million of my money and put it into this. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, we haven't gone 21 for 21. So the risk may be overstated. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then moving back to food insecurity, you know, it's again, it's a, a very important issue for, for you and for Tusk Philanthropies and all the great work that you're, you're doing, you know, working with boots on the ground for the organizations that are getting um, people and families and, and of course, students who don't have a breakfast or lunch uh, during the day, but during the school day, can you help us contextualize how the pandemic exacerbated food insecurity in the U.S.? Yeah. I mean, the, the problem is for people who don't uh, have enough money to buy enough food, they have to get it from other places. And that could be soup kitchens, food pantries, lots of kids get it at school. Oftentimes they can bring home extra food for their families, um, churches, all these things that during the pandemic shut down completely, right? So like I said, I, mm-hmm. I volunteer at a soup kitchen every week. Mm-hmm. Not, there was a solid year that we weren't open, right? Because of the pandemic. And so if schools were all virtual and food pantries and soup kitchens were closed, people who didn't have regular access to food all of a sudden lost the place where they normally get it. And that significantly increased food security. Mm. Wow. And now now that things are, are so, sort of becoming more normal, right? Or reverting back to, to more normal. Yeah. That doesn't mean necessarily that the people who didn't have access to to a sustainable or, or adequate food during the day is automatically going to have that adequate food supply. Now that yeah. again- One of the good things in COVID was that Congress um, really expanded who's eligible for school breakfast and school lunch. And they, they passed waivers that basically means that any kid could get it rather than these very low income levels. Those, as I mentioned, those those limits and those waivers expire uh, in the next week, and the House already passed a bill that does not renew them. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, even though we're coming out of COVID, I think it looks like we're now passing laws that actually will make it harder for people to get food. My goodness. So, uh, I think for listeners who you know who wh- wh- who's this cons- this cause, you know, food insecurity and mobile voting resonates with you. Again, I highly encourage you to to follow Bradley on Twitter. You know, also follow his his podcast. Are there any what again? It's mobilevoting.org. Yeah. So I, I would say this: if if you're interested in kind of some of the different stuff that I've said over the last 15, 20 minutes, um, mm-hmm. if you go to bradleytouch.com, it can get you to any any other anything else. Touch philanthropies, touch strategies, touch ventures, Ivory Gaming, Exalt, PNT Netware. All firewall or podcast, all that stuff. So that, that's probably the best gateway. Okay, excellent, excellent. So Bradley, when it comes to you know starting a philanthropy, right? Was there was there someone in your career or in your life, or people in your career or your life who said, "Hey, Bradley, you know you're on this great trajectory. You're building companies. You're investing in founders. You're the startups that you're backing are going to not only." Again, as a fiduciary, you know, return, ret- uh, make returns for investors, but also impact the lives of the consumers and the environment of those consumers. Sorry, the environment around those consumers. Is it was there a person or, or again, people yeah. that, that influenced that? Hey, you know what, Bradley, you know, you, 
perhaps you know starting a philanthropy or or doing good or 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 making a concerted effort to to do good would be you know part and part should be part and parcel of your day. Yeah, so I would say the the person of the biggest impact on me is Mike Bloomberg. And, and mm-hmm. to be clear, Mike never sat me down and kind of gave me the words that you just said. But mm-hmm. I've been working with him or for him in some way or another for the last twenty plus years, and I've watched him very very closely. And so in many ways, I built my business kind of using the same management tools and styles and techniques that he has, and that's, that seems mm-hmm. to work pretty well. Um, but I also watch the, the way in which he lives his life, the purpose with which he lives his life, how much of his money and time he devotes to things he cares about. And that could be whether it's through Bloomberg Philanthropies or the time he spent uh, in office or anything else that he's doing. And for me, that was incredibly inspirational to see that you know an individual, even if you're not in government, can have a material impact on the world. And that also uh, having money and enjoying it and doing good things are not mutually exclusive, right? Um, mm-hmm. You're not inherently evil if you have money or noble if you don't have money, nor is it impossible to both enjoy your life and at the same time do good things for people. So, you know, I, I've really tried to follow Mike's example and I'll never achieve a, a fraction of what he has. Excellent. Excellent. Yes. Yeah, so I'm Mike Bloomberg and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Again, also back and, and advocate for, you know, some great causes here in the United States, gun safety being one of them. So yeah, no, that's that's absolutely great to hear. Just shifting a little bit, speaking of Firewall, your podcast uh, that you record what, twice a week? You record yeah. episodes? Yeah, we come out Tuesdays and Thursdays. Tuesdays and Thursdays. So I was listening to the episode with Dan Premack uh, a couple weeks ago, and he discussed how founders, you know, for the most part, both of you discussed, you know, how founders look to change or drastically improve the world around them through their startups. And you and you touched upon a couple of, of Tusk Venture startups, Wheel, Alma, Sunday, Row. Let's start with Row and sure. Alma, you know, again, digital healthcare startups. Can you put us in that in that mindset uh, or the, excuse me, give us a glimpse in, into each founder's mindset with regards to how they perceive the... Alma's Go ahead. a really good example here, which is Harry Ritter, who is the founder and CEO of Alma is both a doctor and also he is every Jewish mother's dream. Uh, and, um, was was practiced medicine, was then working at, at Oscar, which is a, a relatively new health insurance company, mm-hmm. and basically saw that there was a huge opportunity to make the process uh, of billing and connecting and scheduling and everything else for therapists and psychiatrists and everyone else a lot easier. And the bet that Harry was making, and we led his Series A, so the bet that we made alongside him, is that mental health is just as important as physical health. People are starting to understand that. The stigmatization around things like therapy have really started to decline meaningfully. And people really want to be able to, you know, get help for the, for their mental and emotional issues and challenges, just like they would if they broke their leg or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we invested in Alma was we felt like there was a huge opportunity for growth and, and really kind of a cultural normative shift that was coming. And that happened. And then when the pandemic came, you know, people who were regularly in therapy and would go to their therapist started doing it remotely. I haven't physically seen my therapist in, in two years. And so that kind of behavior really normalized and set in. And so what, what we thought was eventually going to happen over a longer period of time has ended up happening in a couple of years. Wow. Wow. So, so the, it sounds like, you know, the pandemic, you know, for, for as, again, as horrible as it is, you know, with, you know, of course, you know, there, there are a lot of sickness and death, but from a, you know, again, a silver lining perspective, you know, again, normalizing, you know, healthcare, you know, in this case, mental healthcare, seeing a therapist virtually, it seems that, you know, the, the pandemic also accelerated consumer trends where, 
you know, it's more omnichannel now coming out of the pandemic where, you, again, you used to go and schedule, you know, a 45 minute hour session with your psychotherapist at their office. Now you have platforms like AMA, which again, make it easier for you to do it, to have those those visits virtually. And, and also, by the way, there, there are some companies, we're not invested in them, but they, they use AI to give people access to more care. Obviously, you'd prefer to have a live human being, but if, mm -hmm. if you can't afford that, uh, AI, you know, an AI system might, might still be better than nothing. Right. It might, might be. Yeah, absolutely. And in, 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 in thinking through and just building on, you know, the, the more mission based, you know, startup founder, you know, where again, it's, it's empowering the, the, the consumer, you know, for in this case, you know, to, to find the healthcare digitally or remotely. Is, is, is that enough, you know, for a founder, again, you're going back to this whole premise of doing good and giving back while pursuing success. Is, is that en enough? Meaning, you know, there's some companies, especially publicly traded companies who've moved away from, not moved away, but have have been able to articulate, yes, we're, we're fiduciaries, we're, we're looking to return profit and earnings to our shareholders. At the same time, we need to do good, you know, and this whole concept of, of corporate social responsibility. Um, what is your what is your perspective on corporate social responsibility efforts? You know, yeah, is, is it I mean, is it BS? You know, it's a little bit of both, right? So the Business Roundtable a couple of years ago redefined their definition of a corporation, like you said, from something that solely exists to maximize profit to shareholders, something that mm -hmm. exists to both do that and to try to also take into account the needs of society. That's a really good some corporate CSR is pure pure greenwashing and, and advertising and nothing else, and some of it's really legitimate. But I think, you know, it's, it's worth taking a step back, which is before you even get to like, is this company spending enough money to actually help people? Is, it, is the purpose of this company helpful to people implicitly and inherently? Mm -hmm. right? So take Lemonade, which is a company we invested in out of our first fund. Um, they're mm -hmm. an insurance company. They provide much lower cost property and casualty insurance. Um, it's peer to peer. At the end of the year, if you don't have any major claims, you can either, depending on the state you're in, get your money back or give it to, to a charity that they're working with. And it is a much more community-oriented approach to insurance. In fact, it's a B Corp, so it's not even registered as a typical corporation. Um, that's helping people, right? It, it, mm -hmm. It's giving people uh, more financial security because it is allowing them to have the kind of insurance coverage they need at a much lower price. Um, it is creating a community. And it is, you know, giving money to, to charity. So I think across the board, we're like, take Uber. So mm -hmm. I get a lot of shit from the left publicly for, for Uber. But, you know, at least the way I see it is Uber took an industry that was decrepit, corrupt, sleazy, racist, and, and turned it around completely, right? So, you know, the reason why the opportunity for Uber existed, the reason why this tiny little startup was able to defeat this incredibly muscular industry it's because people were incredibly frustrated with the status quo. So once we gave mm -hmm. them the opportunity to see an alternative, they embraced it, right? And so, mm -hmm. you know, I believe that people now have much higher access to, to transportation and it is safer and it is nicer and it is cleaner. And you don't hear the reports that you always heard with traditional taxi uh, of people of color saying that they had their hand up and the taxi just drove straight by, um, mm -hmm. never an issue with ride sharing. And so, look, you may not like Travis, you may not like Uber as a company, but but to sort of say that because you don't like him or because he gets bad press, Uber is evil, it, it's just really short-sighted and stupid. And it's sort of, to me, the, the idiotization of this country through Twitter. <laughs> There's, there's, there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of, I don't know, just a lot of talk more than action, especially on Twitter. You know, you hit upon, you know, 
people who who have you know perspectives but are they really have they really been again no pun intended been in the driver's seat of actually building a business that that's had the, the scale you know using uber as the example had the scale and also the impact you know to your point you know allowing allowing people to to use a car that just parked in their driveway as a revenue source when they're not working for instance you know i can easily you know open up the uber app and i can become a driver i can open up the uber app and i can deliver food from local restaurants again Uber is a, a similar to digital health a little bit. They're allowing to reach, you know, more, again, far out desolate places uh, than before. You know, again, New York City is the anomaly, but in other areas, it's allowing, the network's allowing to reach more people, yeah. which is great. It helps address transit deserts. Like Bird, which we're an investor in a scuba company. There are, like, if you just take New York City as an example, there are neighborhoods that to get to the nearest subway is a 20 minute walk, right? Or longer. Mm -hmm. uh, and people take a bus or people find other ways to do it. But scooters are potentially a way to, to really reduce that commute significantly, right? And so people who are living in neighborhoods that are generally lower income and not as well served by mass transit, this is a way to eliminate some of those gaps. So, look, every technology has sort of good implications and bad implications. We're clearly seeing that with Facebook right now. But at the same time, when you're looking at the purpose of a corporation, sure, you can look at their CSR and you can look at the things that they say on their website, and it may be meaningful. But the first thing to do is just look at the underlying purpose of the company itself and say, like, if this succeeds, are people's lives better or worse? And that gives you a pretty clear answer. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Again, a viewpoint and perspective. And I just want to end our conversation, you know, talking about P&T Knitwear, your bookstore that's opening up in May. I sure. also want to dig in on the Gotham Book Prize and, and why you've you started the, the, the book prize to really celebrate New York City. Um, yeah. So the bookstore is... I love books, always have. I've written one book and worked on two others right now. Um, mm -hmm. And I always thought it would be fun to own a bookstore one day, right? It was just kind of a mm -hmm. thing in the back of my And then when COVID hit and the impact on the economy of New York City was really significant, it kind of occurred to me that if I was going to do something nice for the city from a retail perspective, because I'm not going to make any money, so I'm going to lose money, um, mm -hmm. why not do it now when the city really needs it? And so that led to the idea led to us finding space on Orchard Street. And ultimately we built the business speaking about kind of the uh, purpose of the company where it's a podcast studio that anyone can use for free. It's an event space that anyone in the community can use for free. It's a cafe mm -hmm. that's completely staffed by people who are formerly educated. Uh, and it's a really top-notch bookstore. And so, you know, the idea was, can we bring something that we think is really good to the city that we care about, that we can be proud of, um, it's in construction right now. So far, so good. And so May 25th, I think, is the last day that I was told for the opening. Hopefully people will check it out. And the name is kind of a good story. Uh, my um, family came to this country in, in the early 1950s after surviving the Holocaust in World War II in Europe. And if you were an uned uneducated Jew, there weren't a ton of jobs that you could necessarily get. But uh, the garment industry was always one place where you could find employment. And so my grandfather and his friend from the refugee camps, guy named Mike Puglo, started a tiny 400-square-foot sweater store on Orchard Street, where my dad tells me it was mostly empty boxes on the shelves to make it look like they had inventory. And then here we are, 60, 70 years later, where, you know, their work paid off. I'm in a position to, you know, open a bookstore just for fun that is on the same block, but 10 times the size, to try to do good things for the community and the city we live in. And so to honor Mike and, and my grandfather and the P&T Network. Oh, that's, that's amazing. An amazing backstory. And again, life comes full circle. And then, 
the the Gotham Book Prize is is your your way of of celebrating authors who write about New York City, right? Yeah, I mean, also it was sort of COVID related. So the I co-founder of a guy named Howard Wolfson, and Howard and I had been talking about the idea of a book prize for a couple of years. Like, hey, how come there's not a prize that specifically rewards the best book either about or set in New York City each year? And then when the pandemic hit, our view was, you know, in many ways there's two New Yorks. So if you live here, there's the physical tangible the streets, the subways, the, the parks, the schools, all of that. And that's what you think about. But for the rest of the world, New York still exists, but really through movies and TV shows and books and music and now podcasts. Mm-hmm. And it's that mystique about New York that people read about and see that really makes it such a desirable place for the most talented, most ambitious people in the world to go. And so New York City's long-term success is dependent on maintaining that mystique so our view was, if by giving $50,000 a year to the best book set in New York City, um, that will encourage writers to keep writing about New York City, then, uh, you know, it's certainly worth the money. So we put together a fantastic jury of writers, poets, historians, civic officials, academics. And last year was the first one we awarded the prize to a guy named James McBride for a novel set in Coney Island called Deacon, Deacon King Kong, which I highly recommend. We announced the nominees for this year's books uh, a couple of weeks ago. If you go to the Gotham Book Prize website, they're all on there. And I think sometime around the bookstore opening, we will announce this year's winner. Amazing. Amazing. So before we end, you mentioned you're reading uh, two books right now. We're, we're writing two books. <laughs> writing two books. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, I'm reading. I'm always reading all different books but and on actually if you can go to bradleytouch.com I, I put up a list of my favorite books each year that i've read so it is on there somewhere but yeah right now i'm reading a novel called the violin conspiracy about a stolen Stradivarius. i am reading a memoir by Roy siegel who's a former cnn reporter uh about her experiences covering silicon valley and tech in fact we had her on the podcast yesterday and then usually there's a there's a book open on my phone uh, i'm only maybe 10 pages into it but it's about a elderly woman in South Korea who is a uh, hit woman uh, and is kind of getting edged out of the business because she's old and that's about how she deals with it. So, you know, I've usually got a couple of books going around. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Bradley, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Really appreciate your perspective on doing good and giving back while pursuing success. Again, as Bradley mentioned, check out BradleyTuss.com for all the endeavor, for all of his endeavors and, and updates. And we'll, we'll speak to everyone soon. Thank you. Great. Thanks for having me on, Eric.